This is O Ship, the show where experts and leaders look back at their biggest moments of failure just so you can avoid making them. And there is no one better to squeeze the naked truth out of our charismatic guests than your host, Chameleon Collective Founding Partner, Freddie Laker. Hi, everyone. Welcome to a very special episode of O Ship. This week, we're being joined by Salim Ismail. Now, Salim is a serial entrepreneur and a successful angel investor. He was even the former head of innovation at Yahoo. Some people may even know him as the founding executive director of Singularity University, uh, which was a university backed by futurists like Ray Kurzweil and Peter Diamandis, uh, who are basically dedicated to inspiring a new generation of leaders by applying exponential technologies like biotechnology, artificial intelligence, and neuroscience to solving some of humanity's greatest challenges. So some of you may be thinking right now, sounds cool, but what's an exponential technology? An exponential technology is a technology that's effectively driving change at an accelerated speed. Well, today we're going to talk about what it means to be an exponential organization or how a company can grow at exponential rates, blowing past the limits that most traditional companies can fathom. Well, Salim wrote the book on this, literally. He was the lead author of the international bestseller, Exponential Organizations. I've read it twice and frankly referenced it more times than I care to admit including right around the time when we were building Chameleon Collective. And it was a huge inspiration for me personally and many members of Chameleon Collective. So this is why today is an extra special episode of O'Ship. So Salim is now the founder and chairman of OpenXO, an organization with thousands of members around the world dedicated to bringing exponential methodologies to all kinds of organizations from startups uh, to the enterprise. So today... Please join Salim and I for an in-depth conversation about why organizations should be striving to be exponential. And with that, here we go with another week of OSHIP. Salim, welcome to OSHIP. Great to be here, Freddie. I could be your hype man anytime, by the way. You just need me to go around and like, I, 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 <laughs> I thought that was way better than any of our marketing people could do. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> uh, well, anyways, again, so, so good to have you here today. I'm, I'm, I've been very, very excited about, about you joining us today. Obviously, this is an area that I'm extremely passionate about and feel I'd like to be pr- pretty knowledgeable about. But you know, our audience may have no context or may have never run into you before or any of your books or anything like that. So maybe before we jump into this, could you, in the simplest way possible, um, kind of explain what an exponential organization is to our audience? Sure. We used to have an original definition, which was uh, an organization design and structure that's growing 10 times better, faster, cheaper than its peers in the same space. And that was the original design. The pervasiveness of the model is now such that lots of people are doing it. So how do you do 10x better than other people that are using the same model? So we evolved the definition to add a really important piece of it, which is the economic thesis behind these. What we found is that exponential organizations or EXOs, as we call them, have found out how to radically drop the marginal cost of supply, right? You think about Airbnb, the cost of adding a room to the inventory is near zero. Whereas if you're Hyatt, you have to build a hotel. And we're finding now uh, that's the really key secret behind exponential organizations. They've figured out how to drop the cost of supply exponentially. 
you know, I guess to help people understand this in a more tangible way, can, can you give some examples of what people might understand to be as, as exponential orgs? Yeah. So, for example, the uh, in a Tesla car, the number of moving parts in the drive, so a typical combustion engine car, a BMW or, or Audi or Toyota, there's about 2,000 moving parts in the drivetrain. The Tesla has 17 moving parts in the drivetrain. Wow, so in terms of design, simplicity, maintenance, etc., it's just orders of magnitude easier to handle and manage and, and kind of uh, structure around. Uh, the same thing goes with, I mentioned the Airbnb example, right? But you take, say, the ability of other EXOs like uh, crowdsourcing platforms that or Uber, where the marginal cost is completely done by the drivers and they handle all, they're outsourcing their assets to other entities or outsourcing it to the community. They don't have to manage all their own cars and all the drivers, et cetera, et cetera. Everything is outsourced and they're just a connector and a matching service. And essentially we're seeing a, an extraordinary explosion of this type of organizational model, which emerged as a result of the kind of the birthplace was Amazon Web Services. When AWS launched, it allowed you to take computing off the balance sheet and make it a variable cost. And that was the kind of the birth child of these types of organizations. And then little by little, they figure out how to put more and more things on the variable cost ledger as opposed to the balance sheet ledger. You know, I, I, there's an obvious business benefit to all of this in terms of scalability and, and things like that. But is it good for customers too? Uh, in many cases, it is. Because think about uh, Uber. Uh, it's now providing transportation services in every corner of the globe where taxis would never get to, a limousine service would never get to, um, bus services would never get to. Same with Airbnb is creating a radical new model for tourism where people go and live in various neighborhoods instead of the tourist hotel in downtown, right? And that's that's completely uh, adding to the new. It's like when we... When we put uh, Netflix into place, it didn't actually change that much the movie-going experience. We just added more capability. Mm-hmm. Like hotels have not dropped in their utilization for the most part, but it's just augmented the travel experience and the range of places I can now go visit within Airbnb is thousands and thousands of times more than just hotel. Yeah, fair enough. So it's uh, beyond kind of creating more places for people to access. Uh, I think you know you could argue that you know, maybe my uh, getting more engaged workforces and so on that also you know, creates lots of different possible uh, increased customer experience opportunities. Huge. So, you know, I, th- I think when you when you think about doing a business like this, uh, it sounds obviously very appealing, but this is not, you know, not something that happens overnight. I can imagine when, you know, one, it's one thing maybe when you're a startup, but I'm trying to imagine um, how to do this if you're, a, you know, Fortune 100 or something like that. How does a company even start to go down this this path? The, there's only there's two pieces to it. You have to do two things. Number one, uh, you have to be able to embrace disruptive innovation, and this is very very hard. A big companies like a Roman army it, with shields and spears marching along in a phalanx formation, trying to deliver the same tube of toothpaste to a million locations at the same time. Right? You come in from the side to do something radically different. It doesn't matter how nice you are; you're going to get speared. And and uh, Anybody that's ever been in corporate innovation has arrows in their back from being <laughs> shot at inside the company. I learned this firsthand at, at Yahoo. My incubator was set up to do di- deliver and build disruptive ideas that had massive upside for the company. The more disruptive the idea, the less the company could handle it. And it was just staggering. I've seen this, what I call the immune system problem at banks or telcos. 
But Yahoo at the time was like 10 years old. Why should it have this problem was, mm-hmm. was a, a, a huge kind of buzz in my head that led me eventually to doing Singularity University. And then the book came out after that. So I went from Yahoo to doing Singularity University where I came across massive disruptive innovation. Uh, the way I frame that is that we have 20 Gutenberg moments happening at the same time. You know, in, in the in the 15th century, the printing press appeared and completely changed the world by democratizing access to literature and to the Bible. Well, solar energy completely changes the world, right? AI completely changes the world. Blockchain completely changes the world. CRISPR, we've got 20 of those hitting us at the same time. So the, the, the there's this tsunami of disruptive uh, disruption coming. And our old models of uh, trying to deliver the same toothpaste into a million places those models don't work anymore. So, what, what does it, what does it re- even mean? By, you know, though, it's like when you see that much disruption, are we just gonna? Is, is it just more companies are gonna die or more emerge? I mean, I guess it's like I think of it almost like a forest fire when you think about you know how much disruption. Like that's this a is great way through. of putting it. It's a it's a a tsunami might be slightly a better way of putting it because it just wipes everything out. Right. Yeah. A forest fire takes out the underbrush, but tends to leave the big oak, yeah. big trees. In this case, the bigger the, the the best analogy we found is the asteroid hitting and the and the dinosaurs. There's a lot of death off. and destruction here, Celine. This has gotten very dark. Very <laughs> it is. I did a I did a, <laughs> I did a talk about five years ago at a conference called the Death of Corporations, and I made the point that we are big uh, corporate operating corporations are designed for efficiency. They're designed for predictability. Right? Yeah. But those heuristics don't work in the world that's coming. You need to be adaptable, flexile, agile, and fast. And those that's antithetical to typical big companies. Uh, and so there's a completely new... Uh, the world that you play in, which is mid-market companies, is where I think there's the most opportunity. Because remember, the other side of disruption is opportunity. Right? If you can harness that opportunity, then a massive opportunities uh, uh, arrive. Let me give you, so, so two things. One is in a big company, you have to solve the immune system problem and uh, stop the company from reacting against. And secondly, you have to be able to embrace disruptive innovation. And the best way we've seen uh, to do that is to do disruptive ideas at the edge, pointing into adjacent spaces. So Nestle spinning off Nespresso is a great anecdote. Uh, they ran Nespresso as a line of business for several years, and it was terribly performing terribly because the company couldn't handle this totally different different business proposition, different uh, brand, different delivery mechanism, etc. They finally put it separately at the edge in a separate entity, and boom, multi-billion dollar line of business almost instantly once it was set free, right? What do you think that is, though, on, on some level? Is it like when these bigger companies is doing it at the edge what's necessary so it doesn't kind of scare the bunny or freak them, you know, the main system. We talked about the resistance a second ago. I'm, I'm trying yeah. to, is, is that like a necessity for them? Let me give you some statements that indicate an immune system response. Okay. Uh, you come in with a radical idea of, hey, what if we did this, right? And somebody goes, we don't have the budget. We don't have the time. We're too busy right now. It's not part of our core business. Our priorities are elsewhere. I don't have the talent. Uh, except everything except yes. Everything except yes, you'll get, okay? Uh, a million reasons not to do something. Big companies are really good at saying no, right? Because um, they're oriented towards those two things, efficiency and predictability. And I'll give you a little anecdote that'll highlight this uh, very well. I joined Yahoo, 
And I extracted five promises from senior management to build this unit, this incubator at the edge, all the way up to jurying. I wanted to be off-brand, be able to go off-brand, because then I can test new ideas. I wanted to be away from the mothership, physically in a separate office. I wanted to be free of the HR rules inside Yahoo and the technology limitations, because if we wanted to build in Ruby on Rails, we should be able to do that as, as we're building startup-type environments. And the fifth one was... If somebody had a great idea, I wanted to give them equity in that idea because otherwise they could just do a startup, especially in Silicon Valley. Right. So those are the promises. I got to sign off all the way to Jerry Yang that yes, we're, we're good with these. We understand why, etc. And then the hell started. Within six months, every single one of those uh, promises was gone, shattered as if it never existed at all. <laughs> so um, like I, I don't remember that. Chat. So so I went to. The HR people, and I said, hey, uh, how do I give equity to the, in, in an idea to the people? And they're like, we can't do that. We have a standardized stock option plan regulated by the SEC. Uh, there's no way we can do that. And I said, but I, but I have promised from Jerry Yang that I'm allowed to do this. They go, Jerry Yang can come down and do my job. We're not giving that. And we were like, uh, okay, okay. And you multiply that across the different ones. And there was an incredible one. So they gave us separate offices, right? And I'm sitting with my developers. I have 20 or 25 of the best developers in the world working in this unit because everybody wants to do this free-flowing, open, disruptive innovation idea, hack Yahoo type of thing. Uh, we're looking at where would we put our servers, et cetera, in this empty space. Doorbell rings. Uh, and I go and answer the doorbell. There's a furniture truck outside. And I go, what's this? He goes, I'm here to deliver the furniture. I'm like, we, did, we didn't order any. He goes, oh, I'm from Yahoo facilities, and my job is to deliver furniture and, and fill an office within 48 hours of a new office opening. And I'm like, no, 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 no. So we open up the back. And it's full of cubicles and yellow and purple couches. It's like Dilbert hell, right? And my developers are going, if that comes in, we're leaving. Because we, we came for beanbags and ping pong cables and the hell with this, right? If, yeah, if hell no. Yeah. And I'm like, so I'm saying, I say to the guy, listen, we, we don't want it. He goes, oh, I'm, it's not up to you. I'm, I'm from facilities. I'm coming in. This is coming in. I'm going, whoa, you can't come in. And he's like, I, I'm sorry, but this is my job description. And this is a facility. And I'm head of facilities. I'm freaking coming in. So I'm like, wait, can you hold for a second? So I spent two hours on the phone with my boss, my boss's boss, my boss's boss's boss, and his boss and his boss, you know, et cetera. And finally, <laughs> I, get, I get sign off like three levels up. Everybody goes, yeah, yeah, it's an accident. We, we don't, you don't need to have it. He wants a sign off that his bonus won't be dinged because he actually did try and deliver the thing in time. All these exceptions have to be kind of dealt with to deal with the situation. Finally, it took the whole afternoon. We get rid of the guy, Right. And big sigh of relief, you solved that problem, et cetera, et cetera. Two weeks later, uh, doorbell rings, same guy, same truck, same furniture. And I'm like, what What happened? I thought, I thought we went through this. He goes, yeah, unfortunately, my manager changed. Noticed you didn't have the tick box, and I'm ordered to bring in the furniture, and now we have to start again. Anybody in a big company can relate to this, right? Yeah, like, this is, now, the key is that he's not being a bad guy, right? He's yeah. following the, the instructions and KPIs, set up by the company. It's the machine. It's how the machine's built. Yeah, it's he's doing his job. And the problem is you have that death by a thousand cuts when you try and do anything disruptive in an existing entity. Um, you can't do it. It just, I've never, ever, 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 ever seen it work. So let me, let me, I've talked to probably 200 of the Fortune 500 CEOs and I've dealt with another probably 100, 150 of them. Tons of mid-market companies. I've never, ever seen disruptive innovation work inside the mothership. You have to do it at the edge, pointing to adjacent spaces 
And that's the only way to do it. Larry Page came to me from Google a few years ago and said, hey, your unit at Yahoo is really successful. Because on the outside, it looks successful. <laughs> it looks good. Yeah. Like, it's like on the outside, it looks great, but inside the duck is paddling like hell to keep in the same place. So he said, well, you know, should I do this at Google? And I said, for God's sakes, don't. Keep it stealth and point it away. And you see the result is Google X, where they have their core information capabilities in the mothership. And they do disruptive things in adjacent spaces. And they took it to the extent of breaking up into alphabet and separating into separate lines of business and separate legal entities just so they could manage that side. The master of this technique is Apple. Okay. And yes, they have a great design capability. And a I'm great actually surprised, surprised to hear that. Yeah. So they have a great design capability. And yes, they have a great technology supply chain. I will argue that Apple's core innovation is its organizational design. Because what they do, unlike anybody else in the world, is they will form a small team that's very disruptive. They will put that team at the edge of the company, keep them secret and stealth, and they'll say to them, go, go disrupt another industry. Right? Whether it's uh, so they have a portfolio of teams looking at different industries when they think something is ready for disruption, be it watches or payments or cars or or whatever, they go into it and iterate it using their capability. There's no limit to their market cap, right? And so uh, there's an insight. The world's biggest company in the world uses this model for uh, expanding and literally has no limit to their market cap. How can they not succeed in this sense? And I think as we go to the future, other big companies will be forced to follow that model. And we've been recommending that model, helping people do it. So you have to do two things. One, set up these new entities at the edge going into uh, adjacent spaces. And the second is you have to solve the immune system response and stop the mothership from attacking it. And that's the those are the two pieces. So uh, I want to talk a little bit more about um, some of the core attributes of what it means to be an exponential org. Yeah. Um, because I think, you know, we've, we've touched on a lot of the things that we're talking about disruption, but there's a lot of different aspects. Uh, I believe uh, it's, what is it, 11, 11 uh, core attributes. Uh, yeah. Uh, so making let, let me describe how we got to this, right? I, yeah, I noticed, right. so I'll tell another quick story. We're building out Singularity yeah. University. We're about two years in, and the dean of the biggest, one of the two most famous business schools in the world comes to visit, and he's super annoyed. How are you getting so much press? He's got articles about SU spread all over the table in newspapers, and he's literally carrying these newspapers around just to show me. Uh, and I'm like, well, we're, we're doing what we're doing. We describe the model. Finally, at one point, he goes, how big is your team? I said, well, there's five of us. Like, it's the five of us sitting around this table. And you could see his mind break. Literally, he kind of left the building. He was gone. Uh, and I swear to God, five minutes later, he goes, do you mind if we go outside and play Frisbee? Like, I'm done. Like, he's gone. Two hours, he's playing Frisbee. And I was like, what What just happened? Like, it's not like we're doing anything radically different. Uh, we're, we're five people. We're using Google Docs for everything. We're collaborating. We're kind of wearing multiple hats as any kind of startup environment. And I dragged him back in at the end. I go, what is wrong? What's got you? You're like, you're, you're freaked out. And he goes, my personal staff in my office is 12 people, right? How can you be doing this? And I realized something fundamentally different has happened in the way we build organizations from the 2000s to the 2010s. Something fundamentally is different. So what we did was we uh, started researching this and we looked at 200 of the fastest growing companies in the world uh, about between 2011 and 2014 and teased out how are they doing it. 
And, and that's essentially the model. So it's not like we invented this. We're basically labeling what was already going on. And we found that this meta model, and you can, if you want to throw the diagram back up, I'll kind of describe it real quick. This meta model comprises a set of characteristics used by the 200 fastest growing organizations in the world. Okay, The most important is the massive transformative purpose, the MTP. We found that all EXOs have this MTP, Google, Organize the World's Information, Uber, Everybody's Private Driver, XPRIZE, Radical Breakthroughs for Abundance. And if you, it was that Simon Sinek question of why do you exist that you have to have? What problem are you fundamentally trying to solve? Which is really powerful when you're growing fast, you need kind of a very good focus. So Google, every time they're trying to evaluate two projects, which one should they fund? Which one does a better job at organizing the world's information? And it provides a great heuristic for the entire company. So we found all of them had an MTP. Then on the right, you see five externalities that they use one or more of to scale very fast, allows them to keep a very small feature footprint. So Uber doesn't hire its own staff, right? Ted uses community. Uh, Google uses algorithms. Airbnb is leveraging other people's bedrooms. And then you have digital engagement models, gamification, incentive prizes, now crypto economics to keep a really sticky hold on your customer and incent them for different types of behaviors. So those are five externalities that they're using. And on the inside, we find five internal mechanisms uh, that drive control framework and manage culture. Uh, interfaces is the, the connection between the organization and all those abundance things on the, outs, on the right. Uh, Apple with its app store developers or Uber with its drivers has an interface, right? And it's actually a form of IP. How do you interact with your drivers? Uh, then there's dashboards, real-time metrics. Uh, we finding EXOs instrument themselves in real-time. Forget quarterly ERP reports, et cetera. If something go, go, is going wrong or right, you really want to know uh, as fast as possible. The third is, uh, is the whole uh, lean startup thinking, radical experimentation, and the taking of risk in the organization. Uh, Amazon, for example, is asking for every team in Amazon how many experiments did you run this quarter? How many succeeded? How many failed? If you're not running enough experiments and not enough are failing, literally your bonus gets dinged because right? they want to be constantly testing the boundaries. The yeah, fourth right. one is autonomy, which is decentralized organizations. The top-down command and control stuff is very inefficient, especially in volatile times. You want to push as much decision-making to the edges. And the end point of autonomy is DAOs. We're seeing huge buzz around decentralized, autonomous organizations. The dirty secret on DAOs is governance. Uh, nobody's really figured out how to do governance in DAOs yet. And so they will thrash around for a bit as a global community figuring that out. But the more you can decentralize uh, your decision-making, the better. Uh, my poster child favorite for this is Valve Software out of Seattle, about 400 people. They have no CEO, no reporting lines, no job descriptions, no management meetings, no middle management. They literally operate like a beehive. So if I spot a bug in the software, I grab three people, we go fix the bug, we disband. And it sounds like a joke, uh, but everybody, they get more revenue per employee than Microsoft by doing this. It's like an unbelievable organization. And the final one is uh, social, which is all the horizontal peer-to-peer -peer collaboration tools, Zoom, Slack, Yammer, Chatter, uh, now Notion. Uh, and uh, Canva and others that allow peer-to-peer. -peer, we have good evidence that peer-to-peer -peer collaboration is much more powerful than traditional top-down vertical manager-to-employee relationship. So some combination of these is used uh, by these companies. If you're a startup, you should be doing all of them because if you're not, mm. nobody else is.
right? If you're a big company, we found that if you fully implement four out of these 10, you get a 10x performance improvement in your organization. That's the model. So it's so interesting. First off, thank you for that. That was it was uh, great. Uh, I've like I said, read it. It's great to and, and uh, great to hear that the, the yeah, lines. Can, can I give you two yeah. examples just to just to sure, uh, review? So my the poster child, one poster child for me is TED. Uh, used to be just a nice conference, a thousand people. You're going to Monterey in California. It's closing up right now in Vancouver. Chris Anderson takes it over. He does three things uh, and massive purpose. Ideas worth spreading. So that's number one. Number two, he puts all the TED Talks on YouTube for free, leveraging rich media. And number three, he allows anybody in the TED community to go create a TEDx event. And in 10 years, he created a global media brand, right? So you can take an established environment, blow it open to global level at zero cost. That's kind of an unbelievable thing that you can do today. Uh, And my second is a recent one uh, called Guazi, which is a Chinese used car company. They sell used cars. Now, that's a very traditional business, right? How do you take a traditional industry and transform it? Maybe you have better do it on a mobile, which is what's happening in the U.S. with Carvana and some of these things. Maybe you do better payments, et cetera. What they do in China is they will show up to a car, take audio, video, and 250 data points, and AI, machine learning AI, analyzes the sound of the engine and can tell if there's any issues with the engine just by the perturbations in the sound. That's amazing. And they get 250 data points and they come up with a real-time price for the car on the spot. They then offer the seller 10% below that real-time price. And then they try and sell it for 10% more than that real-time price. The seller's like, wow, I'm getting cash for a pretty decent value. Done. Here, takes the, takes the car. Uh, they're six and a half years old. They sell 2 million cars a month. They've captured 80% of the used car market in China. Okay. That's insane. Just, just you can't, you can't con- conceive that you can get eighty yeah. percent market share in six years. If, just anyone had, if, if anyone had pitched that as a guy who's pitched his first share of startups, if you would pitched that to any investor, they'd be like, "You're insane." Yeah. Thank you for coming in, though. Yeah. <laughs> this is a real challenge with EXOs, by the way. You can't have a, a five-year plan. I have, a, I have a section in the book called Death to the Five-Year Plan because you know, I'll give you a little insight here. Let's, let's say t- uh, Chris Anderson said, okay, we're going to do TEDx events and we're going to do four in the first quarter and eight in the next quarter and 12 in the next quarter and 60 and a reasonable progression of linear expansion. And at the end of three years, you've maybe run a few hundred events. Okay. Okay. Instead, what he did was here's the massive purpose. Let anybody who wants to follow these rules come in and dip into our capability and build a TEDx event locally that they run autonomously, but they have to follow these rules. Uh, And after five years, they've run 20,000 TEDx events. Now, that would never go into a plan because whoever, if you told a team we're going to run 20,000 of these uh, as we start, they'll quit. They'll basically say you're insane and they'll quit, right? So it's actually really, really hard to navigate this growth trajectory. Because if you put a projection, you leave a lot on the on the table because you'll try and be reasonable. And if you're unreasonable, you'll lose the group. Uh, worth noting, we've had great engagement from the from the audience as you've been talking. Uh, so again, thank you, thank you, Salim. This one uh, from Aura Barbarian. Uh, someone who's invited to lead innovation, a stodgy Fortune 500 company, I could tell you wholeheartedly to walk away if you get similar opportunity unless most MTP components are in place. I think that's uh, 
that's a solid advice from, from the audience. So uh, Paul Pullman, the CEO of Unilever, read the book five years ago, and he ordered, he had me come in and speak to his top 200 execs, and he ordered every brand to take on an MTP. And uh, three years later, the five most profitable brands are the ones that have adopted it the most. So we have really good kind of uh, evidence now, and the wheel is kind of starting to turn, and we're seeing this happen across the board. One of the things I want to throw out there is, and we, we're going to go we jump back maybe 10 minutes in the chat, but I think we just added some really, really powerful context. So uh, we were talking about the natural resistance that exists inside a Fortune 1000 or Fortune 100 even, and you know, just this incredible, I think, kind of pushback because the the mechanics and the engine of that you know, an organization like that is so grounded and there's so much money at stake and so many people in this company that will have this kind of natural resistance to going, yeah. hey, whether it's my bonus or something else, you, you, everyone starts to get, get nervous. Yes. Now, when you're a startup, theoretically, you don't have any of that stuff. You know, do you think startups are more likely to succeed, uh, you know, as, as uh, you know, exo orgs? Because they don't actually, have, they may not have a natural product market fit. So they have their own, own challenges. I'd love yes. to get your reaction to that. So uh, startups have our natural EXOs. And if you look at the biggest companies in the world today, they all started as exponential organizations and scaled. Every single one of them, Apple, Microsoft, Google, uh, uh, you name it, um, Amazon, et cetera. Every single one started and iterated and stuck to their MTP and became really huge and, and keeps getting bigger. So that's number one. Number two is if you're, a, if you're a startup, the two challenges you have are one is holding to this framework so you can manage that scale. But the harder part is really the chaos of fundraising. The challenge for startups is how do you not run out of money? Uh, and that's kind of obviously a higher order bit. And startups have a lot of challenge dealing with that side of things. And so the ones, I think of startups as turtle eggs, right? A turtle will lay 200 eggs on a beach and only 150 of them hatch as they're running towards the ocean. The birds and animals are eating them. They get to the water, the fish are eating them, and only five get to the bottom. And the problem as an investor is when you're looking at the original nest of 200, it doesn't matter how smart you are. You can't tell which five are going to make it to the bottom. Too many chaotic steps uh, in, the, in the middle. And therefore, investors use a portfolio approach. Because okay? startups have high risk for any number of things. It's literally the egg with a very fragile um, birdling is the best analogy because it's very, uh, very vulnerable in its early few weeks and months. Once it gets a little more solid, it gets a little more stable, et cetera, et cetera. But then you lose, correspondingly lose uh, innovation and volatility. The Apple model or the Google model of, of taking disruptive ideas to the edge and going to adjacent spaces is the only model that we've seen that works for large companies doing this. And we're, as we advise big companies, uh, they're more and more starting to adopt the model because they can see the traction now and they can see the disruption that's coming if they don't do it. Okay. For years, I was talking to the car industry saying, listen, Tesla is going to eat your lunch. And you try talking to a German executive uh, uh, 10 years ago that Tesla is going to mess with them. And they just go, I'm sorry, we're German. You can't, you know, you can't beat this. And then boom, uh, the market cap is radically, va not, not that Tesla doesn't have its own issues, right? But I'd rather be Tesla than any of the car other car makers right now. That's all I'll say. 
It, so again, super engaged audience today. And one, one of the uh, audience members asked a second ago, uh, how can Chameleon Collective uh, implement this as well? And I do want to I do want to touch on this. Uh, you know, it, it's from the earliest days when uh, you know I was when I read uh, Salim's book, uh, and as he kind of pointed out earlier, he said, look, some of these ideas existed out there. When I think that Exponential Orgs as a book uh, and and Salim and his co-authors did so well was succinctly summarizing what all of these things meant and how and, and putting it in a way where I was like, yes, all the yeses, that's what I've been trying to say, but I couldn't find the words uh, to try and express it. But I think short of algorithms, I don't think there's anything in here that we don't, uh, as an organization at Commune Collective, use. And I think this is a good example of showing, I think in a very practical sense, where a startup, you know, we started Commune Collective with, zero dollars in funding uh we almost hit 25 million in revenue last year we'll be somewhere around 35 to 37 million this year uh which i and i, I don't say that in any other reason than a testament to how this model works to be to be super super clear but you know we're completely decentralized uh you know about uh valve i i learned about the holocratic or holacracy as a as a effectively a free-flowing leadership model uh, this decentralized in a book of, uh, you know, about Zappos, um, but you know, using that component, um, you know, we're constantly experimenting and, and testing new things at all times. Our whole system is based on a tech stack that we've built uh, that allows interfaces to allow you to access, as as Salim put earlier, a staff on demand, highly community based. We do everything through the wisdom of the crowd. Uh, we, you know, all of our key tools and systems or assets are kind of co-owned by our community and there's a hyper-engaged social and, uh, a model and, and then a reward system built in place to reward, and I don't want to necessarily call it gamification, but to reward all the little things that people can do to engage and continue to stay engaged inside the platform. You know, this stuff works and, you know, for us, we're now at a stage where we're so pumped about this that we've kind of even doubled down on this now. And without kind of pre-announcing anything too much, we're thinking about how we take all the things that we learn, taking these concepts and turning them into very practical systems, and then actually allowing other people to use these practical systems so that they, you know, can follow in these kind of systems. So worth noting, one of the things that is, is not kind of directly mentioned in here, but it kind of falls under, you know, disruption is this sense of openness. And, and I think, you know, really great um, exo orgs have a, a willingness to be open about the systems and so on versus the old method of, of kind of keeping everything really close to them. And, you know, for me personally, and again, one of the other reasons I'm so excited to have Sleem on today is, I'm a big believer that when, when we do well, everyone does well. And so I think, you know, uh, opening up your platform is a great example of that. I'll tell you a really brilliant example of that. And, you know, Tesla's obviously been mentioned multiple times today. But the fact that they opened up all their patents right. because they recognize that the more people that do what they're doing, the better they're going to do, that brains exploded. People were playing Frisbee, Salim. A lot of people were playing Frisbee the day that he did that, I'm guessing, where the minds just melted down, basically. I've, got, I've, I've actually tracked down my uh, kind of an original story of open source, which which uh, has become a favorite anecdote of mine. In 1834, I think it was, a brewer at the chief brewer at Carlsberg Brewery in Copenhagen invented the yeast uh, that didn't make you sick. Okay, before that, when you drank beer, you got sick. 
uh, because it's the sediments. Not, not just because you drank too much, to be clear. <laughs> yeah, no, it just, it just made you sick. And so the more you drank, the sicker you got. But yeah. beer made you sick. And he invented the yeast that didn't make you sick. And the lawyers were all like, this is fantastic. We'll patent this. We'll make a ton of money by licensing it, et cetera, et cetera. And he went, wait, that's not right. That's not about beer drinking. That's about money. And he, I assume that man got a saint, a sainthood someplace along the way. <laughs> he, he made 140 copies of the yeast and without telling the lawyers, sent it to every major brewery in the world and open sourced it, basically. And, the amount, and the amount of beer drunk in the world grew 10x in that decade. Wow. That's amazing. I love it. Yeah. A, a knighthood, sainthood, something. I hope that <laughs> yeah. I got it. It, so, you know, I, I know uh, you've been talking about uh, Exponential Orbs V2. I know you're working on the second release of the book. I noticed it on the OpenXO website earlier. Uh, why, why release V2? Well, the world is changing so much, right? Uh, people have, for about six years have been clamoring, where's the next edition? Because the examples are, are like Uber in our example had a, a 12 million billion market cap, Right. Roll four to eight years, it's radically different. And the how or how is the model holding up was one question. Who's using it? Which attributes have have should we add any more attributes? Should we drop any attributes? Or is were really important questions being asked by our community? Um, we've created, by the way, a community of consultants around the book, which is now seventeen thousand people in one hundred and thirty countries, and we train them in the model. And our open EXOs, because we open source all of our tools to them, and they can go transform their governments. Uh, primarily, we've been attacking this immune system problem, not just in private sector, but in public sector. Because in the public sector, you have bankers fighting Bitcoin, we have taxis fighting Uber. We can't progress society if we don't solve the resistance to new ideas at, at the regulatory level, right? And so our community is almost completely focused on that aspect of things right now. I took eight years to do the second edition just because of the hell of doing it the first time around. The writing a book is not a natural process for me. I'm a high-level hand-waving guy. 80,000 words of detail is anathema. Uh, and so, uh, but finally the community said, we need that goddamn second edition. So we've spent the last couple of years researching it. We're, we're just finishing the major writing. Uh, Peter Diamandis from XPRIZE is co-authoring this second edition with me. Uh, he was actually supposed to co-author the first edition, uh, but his publisher wouldn't let him. Uh, but now we, we're getting ready to. So it'll probably come out in at the end of the summer is when we're looking for launch date. That's exciting. I, uh, I'll definitely be on the pre-order list for this. I want on a record, though, for all the people watching, he looks like a really sweet, nice guy. But I told him I was thinking about writing a book earlier, and he threatened <laughs> to come to my house and smack some sense into me and not not to do it because it's that, that hard a process. <laughs> the book has done way better than I thought it would, and I'm much more proud of it than I thought I would be. But the process of writing was, was just unadulterated help. Right. Sometimes I struggle to knock a fifteen hundred word blog post out, so I sometimes wonder what I'm what I'm thinking of this. But I, I've got some things I'm really passionate about. I want to share with the world. I have to tell you this conversation with my ghostwriter uh, Mike Malone, who's done twenty books and he was editor in chief at Forbes. I asked him, "Why do you want to ghostwrite?" And he said, "This is such an exciting topic for me." He wrote the Virtual Corporation in the eighties. This is a natural progression. I'm in. So I said, "All right." And I described as the original idea was write a fifty page ebook. Just summarize the model and get it out there. And he listens to me for a bit. He goes, no, no, this is an 80,000-word book. 
a 300 <laughs> pages. I, I'm like, no, 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 no. 50 pages, just like, <laughs> and he's like, dude, I've done 20 books. When you are trying to get these ideas out, they're big ideas. You have to kind of spend the, treat them properly. In the end of the whole thing, it was 79,400 words. <laughs> I was like, damn it. There's the voice of experience, right? So, so you, and you've done a, a, a ton of research uh, on on this through. I know the, just not just the writing, but the insane amount of market research. I know you've continued to study uh, what's happened to exo orgs. Is there any interesting or compelling data? I think I'm sure anyone who's been watching or listening to the show is like, this is exciting. Is there any kind of proof points you've got you can share? Like, this is why you need to get serious about doing this. Yeah, I'll give you one uh, that we're going to be announcing publicly in the next few weeks, but I'll give a sneak preview here. Okay. When we, at the back of the book, is a 25-question survey called the EXQ, the Exponential Quotient Survey, which is online. If you go to our website, you'll find it, openexo slash EXQ. You answer 25 questions, one to four, and it gives you a one to 100 quantified score on the flexibility, scalability, agility of your org structure. Okay, so we ask, and it's 25 questions. I'll give you an example uh, of a question. To what extent does your organization tolerate risk-taking inside the organization? Level one is if you, if you fail, you're fired, and, and it's a career-ending move. Level two is we say we tolerate risk, but really we don't. Culturally, we don't. Right? But at least we say it. Level three is we'll do risky things in innovation areas or skunk works, but not in the core organization. And level four is like an Amazon where you're asked how... Uh, even in mission-critical environments, how many experiments you're running, et cetera. So we answer 25 questions like that, roughly two per attribute, and we find the uh, quantified uh, level of the correlation to the EXO model. When the book launched eight years ago, I did a segment on uh, CNBC uh, Squawk Box, you know, the stock market program. We presented an index of the Fortune 100 ranked by their EXO score. So the Fortune 100 ranked by the flexibility, agility, of the, of the model. We just did a seven-year trailing analysis of that, of those hundred companies that how did they do, how did our index perform for seven years? And it's ridiculous. Um, I'll give you one little heuristic. The market cap of the top 10 to the bottom 10 has increased 3x over seven years. Just that's one of the five or six other metrics we'll be publishing. But the performance of the most flexible agile companies, in our opinion, has outperformed the least uh, flexible, least agile by like dozens of times on profitability, return on equity, uh, shareholder value, dozens of times. It's just a stagger because as the external world becomes more volatile, your ability to adapt is going to drive market value, right? And we've got the, we've, it seems that we've uncovered the model by which you are retained and and organized for maximum adaptability, agility, purpose-driven speed. Amazing. Okay, well, I can't wait to see that. Uh, hear that uh, full data release. So I'm going to you know, just be conscious of time, Salim. I'm going to ask you one final question. Uh, and again, it would not be a ship if I didn't ask an ship question. Can you tell me a story, if either whether it's your own personal journey or some exo org that you're aware of, where things may have gone horribly wrong because they attempted to go down this path? Uh, and uh, maybe something either important they learned for it, or maybe you didn't learn anything at all, but just kind of funny in hindsight. Oh, there's tons of failure modes, right? It, this isn't a silver bullet, holy grail, because the, uh, because you have all of the startup issues where you do the wrong thing. I'll give you uh, two. Local Motors, which was a decentralized car company, 3D printing all the car parts, 
uh, built as an EXO. They created a community of designers around the world to help design the cars. Amazing company. Uh, then they got into autonomous cars and started building autonomous little shuttle buses, uh, 3D printed autonomous shuttle buses for campuses and, and small cities. And then when Uber did its stupid thing where somebody died in an Uber test because they weren't using the right technology, they're too cheap to try and license the LiDAR units. That set the entire autonomous car industry back 10 years, the company failed, right? So that's one kind of classic, the market didn't develop the way they hoped it developed. The second is Quirky, which is a CPG company. If you're- uh, ben, ben Kaufman? Yes, Ben Kaufman. Yeah. So Ben, ben is a, a friend, we used to have him come and speak. And uh, uh, Quirky, if you're a typical, if you're PNG or Unilever, it takes about 300 days to get from new idea to product on a Walmart shelf. Even for a good product, that's, that's about 300 days. Quirky was able to get from new idea to product on sale at Walmart in 29 days. Just exactly. blows your mind that that, that was possible in, in what's a traditional, pretty traditional industry. What happened with Quirky was he got excited after two products and tried to do 50 at the same time. And just just fell apart because it wasn't yeah. just wasn't feasible. So lots of failure modes around EXOs. The magic though is because you build on a very small resource base and you're scaling with externalities, your cost is very low. So your cost of failure is very low. You're not doing massive uh, capital investments before you prove your model, right? So now you can do uh, testing of the model until you hit scalability, and then you're investing in growth. I love that you did a Ben Kaufman quirky shout out today. Like I've known Ben for a long time. I'm actually trying to get him on his shift sometimes. So. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> very, very cool. Uh, well, again, Salim, this was just great. We could we could have talked for ten hours. I can e easily tell, but I uh, I'm gonna. I think this is a great, interesting place to stop for today. You know, is there any place if people want to follow and learn more about you that they should be checking out, or any kind of shout outs you'd like our audience to know about? Uh, two things. One is uh, Twitter, Facebook, uh, Twitter, LinkedIn. Uh, you can track me on. Uh, and uh, our website is openexo.com. It's free to join uh, the community. But I want to so mention one quick thing, which is a key tool set that we've solved is we have a 10-week program that solves that immune system problem. So we run this engagement with, we piloted it with Procter & Gamble. We've found a way of hacking culture at scale and moving leadership culture and management thinking three years ahead in 10 weeks. We've done it now 60 times with Black Net wow. or HP Visa, et cetera. It's pretty compelling. So that's something that's never been done before, and we're really excited about that. Very exciting. Well, again, th thank you again uh, for all of you who have been watching either live or watching afterwards or listening to any of our live podcasts. Thank you again for, for tuning in. I uh, appreciate those of you who are been long-term subscribers, and we also really appreciate any of you that are tuning in for the first time today. Uh, the best thing you can do to support this show is give us a like, share us on your social channels, or even better, you know, follow or subscribe to any of the respective feeds that you might be listening into. Uh, this is something we we really just do it for for fun. It's something we're super passionate about. We're approaching our hundredth episode, which is is totally wild uh, for me. Uh, and we continue to get amazing people uh, like Celine to join us. Uh, so again, thanks to all the audience, and we'll see you next week on O Ship. The O-Ship Show is brought to you by Chameleon Collective, where we lead, scale, and adapt to build and grow great companies. You can learn more at chameleoncollective.com. Freddie will see you next time when we will once again be raising the sales for the O-Ship Show.